For bacon slugs? Good? Okay. All right, let's start. Now you guys can go back to wherever you see is better. Okay, so pregnancy induced hypertension. First of all, when you start, right, hypertension, like Dr. Kinnick mentioned before, what's the definition of hypertension in pregnancy? Someone said like above 20 percent baseline. Yeah, of course, most of our patients has a good follow-up and know their own blood pressure, right? So, <laughs> in the book said, if the systolic blood pressure above 140, since given that you don't know that baseline, or the systolic above 90, that's the definition of high blood pressure or hypertension. Therefore, classification per ACOG, um, American College of Gynecology and Obstetrics. So they divide into two, uh, four groups, chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension, which is the management and the evaluation of these two groups are going to be probably the same. Before we start, so let's talk about some path of, no, not pathophysiology, some physiologic changes in pregnancy. Like we know and we mentioned before, this graph is just exaggerated more that in the second trimester, you'll see that the diastolic and the systolic came down. And if you pay more attention, actually the G1, the pressure came, you know, be like even lower than the, the first um, pregnancy. Who has case one? How about one person come up? <laughs> read the case. This is your patient. One person come up, read the case, and the other person come up, write down the diagnosis and management. Okay. Case one. No headache, abdominal pain, changes in vision, no diarrhea, no fever, no urinary symptoms, no vaginal bleeding, no discharge. She doesn't know her LMP. Um, her physical exam was normal except for her blood pressure was 170 over 110, and UPREG was positive, and her ultrasound showed a live IEP that was 10 weeks in size. So for us, we thought that she had. Um, you know, she's still in her first trimester, but she's kind of borderline. So she's probably out. Oh, yeah. What was her blood pressure again? It's like 170. Uh, 170 over 110. Oh, that's bad. So she was essential hypertension. Um, okay. <laughs> but, you know, given that we don't really know our LMP, but I guess we're going after ultrasound. So she can't have uh, preeclampsia. Okay, so your diagnosis is essential hypertension? Well, or? essential hypertension, residual hypertension, emergency. Depends how much she's been vomiting, so she could be like, have hyperemesis, grab your diabetes. Okay. Abdominal pain. It's less 
So, and then what do you want to do? So, we would probably get um, like a CMP, a CBC, UA. Okay. So fluid and symptomatic control of the nausea and vomiting. Okay. Okay. Hence, we're doing the pregnancy induced hypertension. What do you think about her blood pressure? I think it's elevated. Okay. Um, okay. 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 So you repeated it the same. After she bed rest for, we were very busy, half an hour. Went back, check on her. Same doc, 170 or 110. Anything you want to do, or we'll observe her, or? Why you ask? Well, she could still have hypertensive urgency just because she's pregnant. You still have to make sure she doesn't have a hypertensive emergency. Okay. She's not showing signs of stroke. Um, she, if you should, more renal failure. Um, she is 45 with maybe hypertension, female, so we'll probably get a baseline EKG because she's having nausea vomiting, could be a uh, inferior wall MI. We'll make sure that there's no EKG changes. If all that is normal and all she has is central hypertension that's poorly controlled, we will, depending on what her follow-up is, either have her follow-up, probably start her on a low-dose uh, beta blocker or something like that for heart rate's okay. Um, if she has no follow-up, then we'll have to arrange follow-up for <laughs> Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. So this case, the diagnosis is chronic hypertension or essential hypertension. This means the patient already have hypertension disease before or the high blood pressure is not causing by the pregnancy. How do you define that? If the blood pressure is high before 20 weeks of pregnant or and persist for more than six weeks after delivery. Um, so this chronic hypertension can associate with superimposed preeclampsia or it can cause rupture um, placenta. It can cause um, IUGR, interuterine growth restriction, prematurity or stillbirth. I agree with other plan that you guys was talking about, sending labs and have to evaluate whether this is hypertensive emergency or hypertensive urgency, or just chronic hypertension with just high blood pressure. Um, besides that, though, so um, Tyler mentioned is correct. Bed rest is the management of chronic hypertension. Antihypertensive medication. So, when do we treat? At the blood pressure of 170 or 110, it's a little bit high and considered pregnancy, then they actually recommend the treatment to bring the blood pressure down below 150 over 100. Does it need to be done? Does it need to be lower 150 over 100 in the emergency department? Not necessary. But you should consider starting a patient on some medication. In that case, 
then I would actually, you know, call OB guy, talk to them like, what do you want me to start, or can you follow her up? Because she's gonna have high risk of turning to superimposed preeclampsia or eclampsia later on if her blood pressure is not getting control, right? And it's been well known that we need to avoid ACE inhibitor and hydrochlorothiazide in pregnancy. There are some studies, I mean, so people nowadays, um, what should I say? So the, the first pregnancy, what should I say? Um, so, sorry. People getting pregnant at the older age, so they tend to have hypertension without the, um, not, not gestational um, pregnancy. So this is, I'm sorry. So they tend to have chronic hypertension with the pregnancy because they're getting pregnant later um, at the age. And there are many studies try to figure out what medication they can give to prevent the preeclampsia or eclampsia in these scenarios. None of this has been promising, promising except aspirin 25 milligrams per day from gestational age of 12 weeks. I have seen a patient that actually taking aspirin, she was like 18 weeks, and at that time I didn't know, like, why do they recommend this? And the OB guy actually put her on, so to prevent this. And she came in with the hypertensive, just hypertension and complaining of a little bit of headache. So the, the aspirin is to prevent? Uh, the preeclampsia and eclampsia. Is, is one thing that is promising. It's not like, you know, like a rock science, like, okay, this you have to give it, but some OB guys tend to give it now. And the other stuff is like in terms of like vitamin or um, some immunoglobulins that they've been studying is not pr as promised as aspirin. What medication we should give? So there are a bunch of choices we can choose for the chronic hypertension. Right? And remember, this is not emergency. We don't have to lower it down now. We don't need anything that you know doesn't have to be shot acting and turn it on, turn it off fast. We just need some something that we can send a patient home with. So it has to be pills, and then the patient has to take that and follow up. So the American College of um, Gynecology and Obstetric actually recommend metudoba. This is drug of choice. NHBEP, I don't remember what is the abbreviated form, but it's actually a workforce that um, a committee that make a decision on how to treat the hypertension in pregnancy. So they recommend metrodoba. What we normally give though, we normally, we're familiar with labetalol and hydralazine. So labetalol is getting more concerned in um, ob guy um, docs because it has been rumor or whatsoever said that it might may be related to gross restriction of the baby and neonatal bradycardic, although there is no evidence proved. Um, and hydralazine, the one that we normally use, is never, there is no big control trial about hydralazine, how is it affect in the pregnancy, but it's been long, it's been used for such a long time and no serious side effect been reported, so they assume that it's relatively safe in pregnancy. So if I have to choose and then avoid the ACE inhibitor, right, and hydrochlorothiazide. So that's the caveat for chronic hypertension is less than 20 weeks or it's persistent more than, um, more than six weeks after pregnancy, after delivery. And if, it's, if the blood pressure above 150 um, systolic and 90 diastolic, you should consider to put the patient on antihypertensive medication and get a good follow-up. And someone mentioned about the UA. 
So it is very unlikely for the patient to have preeclampsia or eclampsia at the lower gestational age. Although, I mean, nothing is like 100% in medicine. So it doesn't hurt to get a UA dipstick to test for the protein, but it's very unlikely for them to have that condition at the early pregnancy. So you call it superimposed? Yeah. Well, do they make criteria? I would say yes, because the criteria for gestational hypertension um, for the preeclampsia is actually hypertension with protein urea. Yeah, so they Yes, and that will prevent the preterm labor as well. That's a good point. Who has case number two? So this is your second patient. a little bit. Let's say that this patient had the same symptoms but no protein urea. What would be your diagnosis? So she still had, would have leg swelling and this is definitely elevated for pregnancy. So I would still treat it at, as it is preclinative. Um, plus she's got a headache too. Um, so um, I would still treat it with lobetalol um, and hydrolysine. I might observe or uh, admit her just for observation because she might not have an area today, but she might have it tomorrow. Uh, plus, I'm still concerned with great plans yet. I wouldn't send it on. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, if the patient doesn't have protein urea, the diagnosis is gestational hypertension. Keyword is, is presenting after 20 weeks. So we're probably not going to see in the ED, hopefully. They should go up. Um, but sometimes you never know. Very interesting that I found, and I think this is kind of new, because when I was learned, it wasn't this theory before. This is a pathophysiology of um, gestational hypertension. It's kind of a little complicated. 
The only difference, so this is normal placenta, healthy one. This is the one that causing hypertension and prone to have preeclampsia, eclampsia. The only difference is this thing. So it's, they don't have a name for it, it's just like SFLT1 receptor. So this preeclampsia placenta actually um, have more of this receptor, which is kind of like the normal receptor FLT1. But once the um, vascular endogenic growth factor and PIGF, PI growth factor attached to this is actually causing the dysfunctional of endothelial cells and causing clots, causing more like thrombus in the vessels and that causing high blood pressure in the pregnant. So knowing this, knowing that the placenta is producing this receptor, right? So now we know like what are the risk factors of patients to have um, gestational hypertension and later on can develop preeclampsia and eclampsia. So if the patient is old, that means that the first pregnant is they are older than 40 years old, um, or this is their first pregnancy. This is, or they have large placenta. What does that mean, large placenta? In what scenarios? Just big, maybe big. Twins? Molar. Those are two big things, right? So, or like, um, or the patient, oh, I'm sorry. Or the patient has the interval between two pregnancies more than 10 years. So that considered kind of like it's another first pregnancy again. The patient obese, BMI more than 35, have history of eclampsia or preeclampsia in the past. And the patient that have any kind of underlying disease before they get pregnant, chronic hypertension, diabetes, autoimmune disease, then they, they, these are high risk. And the reason why do we need to know this? Because these are also the group that they will consider to put the patient on aspirin as well. I will not go into like how many risks you have to put the patient on aspirin, that's not our job, but just to know that if the patient have all of these and you see the patient in the ED, it may ring a bell like, you know, maybe we should consult OB guy and ask them if the aspirin is indicated. Hmm? So <clears throat> it seems like the definition varies at 20 weeks, but what if the patient in, in case one, you knew the baseline uh, blood pressure and it was normal, and they come in with still elevated blood pressure at 150, I mean, would, would you still call it essential hypertension or pregnancy-induced hypertension? I guess it's, it's just semantics because you're going to be treating the same way, but... If you know that the patient has high blood pressure? No. If you know that the patient before uh -huh. uh, pregnancy was normal tensive, and then after pregnancy, but before 20 weeks, was hypertensive. Yes, so that's, that's still be, could be, that's still be chronic hypertension or essential hypertension, because the theory is at the placenta size below 20 weeks, it shouldn't cause, it shouldn't produce that much to causing hypertension, except molar pregnancy. That's kind of like, we, it's unpredictable because the placenta can get really big, and it can causing all of that. So normal pregnancy, then. Um, okay, so now, in your case, then you think is pleeclampsia, right? So the patient, 30 weaker, headache, proteinuria, blood pressure 150 or 110. So you want to order the labs, you want to admit for the observe. We kind of need to know if we get to see one of these. We kind of need to know whether this is my preeclampsia or severe preeclampsia. The treatment is quite different because in my preeclampsia, they actually can be discharged home, bed rest at home, and then get a good close follow-up. 
But in the severe preeclampsia, you treat it like eclampsia. So that means the patient is automatically admitted. And then, you know, well, you can consider either termination of pregnancy or you consider treating um, the blood pressure very aggressively, consider magnesium. And these are criteria. Um, so if the patient has the blood, high blood pressure in a very low gestational age, I mean below 34, 35 weeks, that means that the disease is very aggressive, right? So that's severe. If the blood pressure is really high, that means it's more than 160 above 110. Or the patient both will have proteinuria. But if the proteinuria is more, it's more than three grams. This is kind of like, this is like nephrotic disease, like nephrotic syndrome range of proteinuria. So this is very, very um, severe. So the patient has severe preeclampsia. If the patient have oliguria, if the patient have any associated symptoms, including headache, like that one has, visual disturbance. And this is quite funny. I remember Dr. Sushad asked like, whether the patient has any visual symptoms. And sometimes you just forgot to ask them. And, or sometimes they don't even know. It's just, you know, they might have kind of like um, scotoma. They might see kind of flash or something that's not normal. But they didn't perceive that as not normal. This isn't always, you know, that headache or whatsoever. Um, or the patient have abdominal pain. Most of the time, it's epigastric pain. And that's why it seems irrelevant when you have a patient with the high blood pressure and you ask, do you have epigastric pain? But you gotta ask them because this could be just symptoms. I have a patient when I was practicing in Thailand. She was like 37 weeks, came in, has a pre good prenatal care, never had any high blood pressure during her prenatal care. And then she just complaining of epigastric pain. And then I was like, okay, let's check the blood work and everything. Why are we waiting for the blood work? Because it's like a small hospital. It takes a while to get all the urine and everything. And then she started complaining of, my head hurts, and then I can't see. And then she sees right in front of me. So it's kind of up that fast. You just need to be careful and you know, always ask for all these symptoms. And the next thing is labs, right? So you already know that you have to check for the liver enzymes. You have to check for the CBC looking for thrombocytopenia. You're looking for um, any rising of serum creatinine. And if the baby has intrauterine growth restriction, this is kind of difficult, this one, because this is probably the, only the OB guy can define that. You will, not, you will never know. So in the, another severe form of the, uh, another severe preeclampsia form is what we call HELP. And you mentioned that before, right? So HELP is hemolysis. And the um, signs or like the evidence of hemolysis is the cytosides or the helmet cells over here, just in case you've never seen it on the smear. The patient um, should have elevated LFTs. What's wrong with this slide? Is that LDH and AST is indicator of elevated LFTs? Yes, no. What causing high LDH? Hemolysis, right? So I actually put it wrong. So LDH and AST elevated from the hemolysis, and the patient can have low platelet. So the help patient, you treat as a severe preeclampsia. How do we treat it? You treat the blood pressure if the systolic is above 170 and the diastolic blood pressure above 105 with the goal, the same goal as to keep it down below 150 over 90. Um, you would consider prophylactic magnesium. It may, may sound like so aggressive that the patient not sees yet why giving magnesium. 
But magnesium do two things, right? It can prevent a seizure, and it also decrease the blood pressure. And of course, in the severe preeclampsia or help, you, the, the treatment is terminated pregnancy. What medication should we use? We mentioned about this before. What I would want you to concentrate on is the dose, because this patient we might be able to see, and um, the reason, and I will talk about it later on, like why would we see this kind of patient in our ED? Um, so you want to use either labetalol or hydralazine. For it's, it works fast, is um, and we can. Well, it's not easily controlled, but the, the benefit is it works very fast. Labetalol dose is 20 milligram IV. And if the pressure is too high, you can sign on a drip, or you can give more, or you can use hydralazine together with dobetalol. Hydralazine dose is 5 milligram IV or IM, and then you can repeat the dose it. You can try nifedibine. Nifedibine is actually pills, so it's even more difficult to control the dose and absorption. And then nitroprusside is shouldn't be used in um, pregnancy. The target blood pressure, is, like I said, is 150 over 90. How do we give? So, okay, so we want to give labetalol and hydralazine for this patient. Maybe we should consider magnesium. Someone mentioned about this before. So, four to six gram IV over 30 minutes. If you don't have IV, you actually can give IM. It's five and five, so like five one and five one. So, like because it's a total of 10 IM but it's, it's a big amount, so you cannot give it at just one shot. And they don't, normally they give in the gluteal because there's a big muscles. The magnesium is a big, is a, a, a big amount of um, fluid. So five grams five. five? Yeah, so a total of 10, five in five, like two syringes, five and five. Um, magnesium toxicity. We talked about this before, right? So it can cause respiratory depression. It can cause baby dysarrhythmia and um, decrease of reflex. So if you happen to be on the OB guide ward, they actually, when the patient is on magnesium drip, they actually look for these symptoms. Like when I was doing my rotation, you actually have to check the reflex every morning, have to check the urine output because it can cause decreased urine output. The patient should have foleys or restrict um, IO um, log. And then... We already mentioned how to fix that, right? How do you fix the magnesium toxicity? Calcium, Calcium gluconate. <coughs> Who has case three? We do. Who's he's a comedian? I don't remember his name. <laughs>
just get her on the fetal heart monitor and see how the baby's doing. Okay. You guys know at what gestational age that they will consider would be the cutoff for them to actually deliver the baby? Yeah, so it's basically 34 weeks, 32 to 36 actually. That because the lung maturity is already mature at that time. If you do have time, well, first of all, if the patient had eclampsia, terminate the pregnancy no matter what because it's just too risky to risk the mom's life. But if the patient has severe eclampsia or mildly eclampsia, then you can wait and you do have, um, you have time for the steroids to work then they might do the expectant therapy. That means that they will admit the patient and give them steroid dexamethasone, like six milligram, kill four to six hours for two weeks at least, wait until steroid work to increase the lung surfactant, and then they will deliver the baby. I thought you only had to do the or methasone twice, and you know, 24 hours later you can deliver. Um, that might be correct. I'm not quite sure then. That's probably correct. That sounds more about right. <coughs> So it's like 48 hours. Okay. DC, do we have like, do we have telco in the ER? Like, can we tell the nurses to set up telco? This is a very good question. I don't know the answer. We do have to. I don't think we do. I think you have to call me. You do. I wouldn't know. So eclampsia. It's basically it's pleeclampsia. That means hypertension more than 20 weeks with proteinuria with seizure or coma. It doesn't have to be just seizure. So the patient can have alterminal status, like we mentioned in trauma patient, um, or they can just become somnolent, drowsiness as well. And it's actually can develop up to four weeks to six weeks after delivery. So this is when we're gonna see the patient, right? The patient already delivered, OB guide done with them, and then they're like, come to the ER, high blood pressure, complaining of headache, epigastric pain, maybe seizure in the field, and then you're like, what's going on? If that happens, do they tend to get readmitted to gynecology? Or? I would consult OB guy. Yeah. I mean, from, what, from my perspective, they should be made to OB guy because if this new onset seizure, um, they're in the range with the high blood pressure, it sounds like it. Yeah, they make your OB. For the neuron checks, that's yeah, exactly. To make you, but yeah. it will be to whom they wouldn't be able to do that. Correct. Yeah, I think depending on if it's if it's truly like a seizure or an eclampsia, they might consider the NICU versus if it was just kind of mild alternative status, maybe it'll be. And another thing is because the patient is already delivered, right? So there's nothing much OB can offer compared to like medicine. Also, can give them magnesium and medication and observe as well because the baby is already out. So the patient presenting with headache, vision changes, edema, protein urea, elevated uric acid, and um, abnormal LFT. And you guys, and and you did it right. So you ABC. So you have to management airway, breathing, and circulation, and then management seizure, protect the airway, control the blood pressure. And sorry, that's wrong. So if the eclampsia is before, um, is, is, um, is not postpartum eclampsia, then consider termination of pregnancy. 
So take-home points for the pregnancy-induced hypertension. The patient can have low blood pressure in the second trimester. So remember that 140 over 90 can be abnormal. It might be already high. And that can be like gestational hypertension already. Um, prefer to control blood pressure with labetalol and hydralazine in emergency situation. But if you want to send a patient home, then you might want to consult ob guide. They might consider metudopa as well. High-dose magnesium is your friend. Don't be afraid to give them. You just need to make sure that you can monitor them. That's all. And it's just like Q1 hour monitoring, but you just need to make sure you can monitor them. And have, like Dr. Koenig mentioned before, have the antidote at the bedside. That's it for this one question. Isn't, isn't the United States trying to like rescue babies when they're like 22 weeks? Yeah. Yeah, some, some places so you can do that and giving the, nowadays we have surfactant that we can give them, you know. So what's the youngest now? It used to be what, it used to be 500 grams and then it was like... Yeah, Sonia, my wife's in uh, NICU graduates, she's a pediatrician, she's in NICU graduates. When she first started when she was a resident, it was very uncommon before 24 weeks. And now in her clinic, she's seen Nikki graduates at even 18. Wow. I mean, they're, they're very, most of the time, they have a lot of developmental delay and other issues. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of rehab and stuff. Um, but, yeah, she's seen up to 18. <laughs> yeah, she's at Long Beach. So. about infant mortality rates in the world. We're the lowest. We're, like, the worst. But it's because we try to rescue these kids. Oh, interesting. Um, but you know, we are we are the the, the, the highest uh, buyers of uh, handguns in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to let you know. <laughs> the Glock Nine apparently revolutionized handguns in the United States. But to be clear, we're not shooting newborns. <laughs> 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 I'm not making that connection. I wonder where all the dollars are going. That's all.